Hi, everyone. Feminist Hot Dog here. Just popping in to say thank you so much for listening. The response to the podcast has been awesome, and we really want to keep it going and keep it growing. So if you dig the show and you want to support Feminist Hot Dog, please do two things. Download the episodes and leave us a quick review telling us what you like about it. That's going to help us show up in the rankings, which is super helpful for getting more listeners. So we've had a lot of fun and we are looking forward to some inspiring guests in 2019 and even looking at possibly doing some merch. So stay tuned, keep listening, give us a download, give us a rating, and most importantly, love yourself and love your buns. Here's the show. Please don't go, I need you so I... This looks good. We got we got a good wave. And what about when I talk? Am I waving right along with you? I think we're I think we're in sync. I All think right. we're waving okay. Just like that. And just like that, we're recording an episode of Feminist Hot Dog. The beginning. It just happened. It's just it the beginning is always very mysterious. When are you, when does it actually begin? It's like a philosophical question. Right. Like this could have begun like Days Weeks ago, years, maybe even in utero or before <laughs> at the beginning of time, since the beginning of time, there have been feminist hot dogs I'm trying to talk about <laughs> feminism. That's pretty awesome. <laughs> well, uh, Judy, welcome to Feminist Hot Dog. Thank you for being here. I'm so happy that we were able to work this into our little visit. Thank you for working me into your schedule. Absolutely. Um, this is Feminist Hot Dog, the news, humor, and cultural survival podcast by, for, and about women. And I'm here with my dear friend, Judy Kerner, teacher, mother, artist, and all-around badass, feminist lady, just a general peach of a gal. Well, I like to think of myself sort of as a jack of all trades, mm-hmm. master of none. <laughs> I think that accurately describes you. <laughs> um, so I've had, I think you're the second teacher that I've had on the podcast. And I'm, as many listeners know, a huge advocate for the educator, for the the youth of the nation. They're very near and dear to my heart. And you've been a teacher for a long time. A long time, maybe um, about 15 years or okay. so. Well, um, can you tell the listeners a little bit about your your sure. life and legacy in the uh, education <laughs> world? What brought you there? What kept you there? What sparks your passion about kids? Oh my gosh. I decided to be an educator so I could have summers off. I'm not even joking. I, I think that's a great reason. I mean, I, yeah. I mean, I was a parent. I'm like, I want to spend time with my child. Mm-hmm. I want to have like a balanced lifestyle. So I wanted to be an art teacher because I love art, love the arts. And as I trained to be an art teacher... I watched all the art positions disappear with all art funding. So that was awesome. So I kind of got kidnapped and put into the special education field, which was just a random, it just happened. I was just stolen and thrust in there. And I realized that I really love it. It's a really multifaceted way of doing education. So I get to meet kids' families and have like almost counseling type relationships with so kids. So when you say multifaceted, what do, what do you mean by that? So it's not like I spend my entire day teaching in front of a group of students. So I'm doing case management, I'm doing administrative stuff, I'm collaborating with other teachers. It's like real varied. Oh, so you just have a lot of variety in your day. Tons of variety. 
Well, that's cool. What, um, what, I know that you're like technically not supposed to have favorite kids, but like, what, what are your favorite <laughs> kinds of kids? Um, you know what? I, I love all kinds of kids. Um, a lot of people have a hard time with like the female eye rollers, like, oh my God, you know, mm-hmm. like that kid. And like, that has no impact on me whatsoever. So I, you know, work really well with those. I work well with like, I, I love all kinds of kids. Really, the main thing is like kids that, like you, you mm-hmm. tend to like more. So, you know, like if they're open to working with you, it's a lot easier. But I like the, the kids that are challenged too. So, well, I'm sure that they're that they eventually appreciate you, even if they don't in the moment. <laughs> Most of them do. I ran into a student. I went to see The Lion King a few days ago and saw a student that was probably in his late 20s. Mm-hmm. And he's like, oh, my God, Miss Judy. You know, and I'm like, well, I, I kind of recognize your face, but not totally. And he's like, it's me, Michael. I was terrible, remember? And I'm like, oh, oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> you were. You had so much energy. Yes, I remember you. Oh, well, he obviously remembered you and was very excited to see you. That's so sweet. Yeah. So we were talking a little bit earlier about how your identity as a woman and as a feminist has influenced you as a teacher and particularly in your work with girls. And um, you were telling me about a class that you taught. And can you, I just think that the listeners would be really interested to hear about that. Yeah, it's actually really interesting. I mean, education is always looking back at um, data and trying to figure out, you know, which students are getting what they need, which students aren't getting what they need. And of course, working in special education, um, it's a, a demographic that's hard to serve. If you look at at the data, so many more male students are diagnosed as having learning disabilities which, I mean, genetics does not support that more males have learning disabilities than females. It just doesn't. Um, so it really is a social and environmental uh, thing that you look at. Mm-hmm. But looking at all the data, and especially looking at data of what happens to kids after high school, like post-secondary outcomes, it's the girls that have learning disabilities that tend to not find success. Interesting. So... The class that you taught, was that specifically designed, did that come out of looking at that data? Exactly. It was a reaction to looking at that data and saying, okay, we want kids to be successful. And success can mean a lot of different things, but generally being independent, being able to have a career, hold a job, be, you know, um, just out on your own and doing what you want to do is the definition of success. And girls were not keeping up with their counterpart. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's where the class was born out of. And, and the research was done at the University of Oregon and a curriculum was developed and then it was piloted and, and then adapted based on the data and then put out again, like made some adjustments and, and re-delivered. So I did it twice. And when you say the class, can you just describe what it was and who took it and what the focus was? Yeah, yeah. So the class originally was called Paths, which I just cannot say. It feels like a mouthful of pebbles <laughs> in my head. Paths. Paths. And then the second version is Paths to the Future. Um, and it's all-female class, which, like, at first I thought, wow, really? Like, kid, will that even fly in our school district? Like, just you know, having only female students, but the University of Oregon was really supportive and professional in the way they rolled out the curriculum and rolled out the um, the whole experiment, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And so uh, it was wonderful. 
the girls, the first few times I taught the class, the girls, many of them were really taken aback at the fact that it was just females in the class. A few of them, you know, almost protested like, that's ridiculous. I can't believe there's no boys in this class. And it seems like unfair. And always, always by the end of the class, girls are crying and so excited that they've made relationships that honestly unfolded in a completely different way than relationships unfold when males are present. And what, how would you, what did you observe? How were they different? It's, it's, it's kind of a phenomenon, really, because at first there's just like these minute shoves, these minute differences. Um, girls, they begin with all their, all, you know, all, all their armor on, right? And, mm-hmm. and slowly they stop being so protective of their personas, their, the way they're perceived, and they start sharing how they really feel about things. And what age was this that you were that you were teaching? So it's all high school students, so from 14 to 18, okay. really. And so girls of that whole age range were in that class? How, yes. That's kind of cool, too. So you it's have a amazing. little bit of, I mean, not intergenerational exactly, but like, um, it's not like all freshmen or all seniors. No, and we've I've tried a different, like, different varieties of like mostly upperclassmen mostly younger like even spread uh, and and there's benefits to all and and challenges with all so um yeah well thanks for thanks for talking about that i wish i had taken a class like that when i was in high school yeah i think i would have liked it i've i have uh well, so traditionally, kids do not like being in special ed classes. They don't, it's stigmatized. Mm-hmm. They don't love it. And even with that fact that it was a special ed class, the majority of the girls that took the class say that it was their favorite class they ever took, ever. That's got to feel so good. It's pretty amazing. And it's not really me. It's just like the, it's the setup and their ability to network with all females. Mm-hmm. Um, I also want to just, take a little bit of time to talk about your, um, we, so I am not a parent and I often kind of overlook, I think for that reason, talking about parenting on this show, but it's, um, reality of of life and a really important part of the identity of a lot of the listeners and a lot of the women that I talk to. So I just wanted to... Somebody's got to do it. (laughs) (laughs) So I thought that we could take a moment to talk about that too, because you have two adult daughters. Two adult daughters. And a little bit of an unconventional parenting story, which I'm I'm hoping you're willing to talk about a little bit. There's not a long enough podcast in the world <laughs> to explain like the, you know, the, the history of the family. <laughs> which is which is totally fine. But I do um I do think if you feel comfortable sharing your thoughts about how your experience raising you've raised one daughter, but you mm-hmm. have two and yes. you have really close relationships with both of them and I'm just interested to hear about just how you know your evolution as a mom and a feminist and how that's influenced the way that you've interacted with your girls as they've grown up yeah well so I was a teen parent and got pregnant at 18 and completely unprepared and so I ended up um doing an open adoption and my daughter Charlotte my first um 
was adopted by a family, and I actually lived on the East Coast at the time. She came out here to the West Coast. I eventually found my way out here, and it's never an easy uh, reality. Like, adoption is, it's complicated. Mm -hmm. However, we were really lucky. Everybody was very open and educated and... um, and facilitated great relationships. And over time, Charlotte has become, my first daughter has become more of a best friend, mm-hmm. really, than, than a daughter. But also, I'm still, like, still protective of her like a mother, but it's it's very different. Right, it's very right. different. Mm-hmm. And, and then there's Madeline. And then there's Madeline. <laughs> so, and she came along maybe three years after, and so I was still... I mean, I look back, and Madeline is now older than the age I was when I had her, so it's kind of complicated to think about yeah. it. But I'm looking at her saying, like, when I was your age, I had a two-year-old, and I can't imagine. Mm-hmm. Like, to me, it's like, how did I even do that? And I wasn't ready. I mean, you know, not at all, but uh, but you jump in sometimes, mm-hmm. and some of the best things happen when you just do that. Well, and your kids are so cool. I mean, I've met them both and they just love you so much. And like seeing the three of you together is just, you just have a a light and a connection that is just so, it's just so authentic and, and just, I mean, I'm sure lots of mothers do have that, but I wonder if having been a younger mom, you know, influenced that in some way. Sure. I could, I could imagine. And then like, I just always wanted kids. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of my thing. Yeah. I really wanted it. And so I loved being a mom. I love being a mom and it just is super fun. So like loving something makes it sort of magical. Yeah. 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 It feels magical from the outside watching you be watching. Well, and I love my, my daughters are both like little weirdo creatures (laughs) and I just, they're so not like, they're just not typical. I mean, they fit, they have a great little niche in society. They are not unhappy or misfits at all, but they are not typical. I love them. No, they are not typical. And, but, and they're also, they're both very artistic like Mm -hmm. you Mm -hmm. and very spirited and very funny and just, they're just great. Lovers of life. Lovers of life. Well, thanks for, thanks for sharing a little bit about your story. Um, and for sharing your cool kids with the world, because I've really enjoyed them Aww. over the years. Um, all right. Well, is there anything else that you would like to share about yourself? I have a lot of wonderful people in my life. I have a lot, like a strong female community that you're a part of that mm-hmm. is just um, kind of my lifeline and it's it it doesn't feel like that's the kind of thing that everybody gets to experience i feel so darn lucky that i get to well and it's interesting because that community is kind of built around like ostensibly around crafting and art, but really it's about like connection. And Absolutely. Those long, deep ties that, you know, really only, only happen over a period of years and years and years of watching people fall in love and have babies and get divorced and move and move back and get in fights and get back together. I mean, it's just, it's, it's really um, kind of an incredible, uh, it's an incredible group of women who've been through a lot together over how long Indeed. has it been? Like- we actually, we have a savings where people are like feeding so that we can just build a commune for when we're right. old. <laughs> thank, thank goodness. Cause you know, I don't want to live alone. No. I don't want to go into an old lady's home. So mm, we're going to make all the kids like change our diapers and we'll have like one community center and like small tiny homes around it. And 
Let's go. Okay. Where, where do I send my money? <laughs> I know, right? $20 a month. Okay. I'm in. That whole concept makes my feminist heart sing. Yeah. But let's talk about what else made our feminist hearts sing um, recently. Well, there I have just a couple things that I wanted to talk about. Tell me about it. So I am, have, and this might be also just because I recently just got back into reading, like actual reading of books <laughs> after, like I was a big, huge reader when I was younger and then graduate school sort of like stamped mm-hmm. the love out of me. Love. Yeah, it really, it did. Um, and I also think like laziness and social media also sort of overtook me and I was like, I don't want to read anything that takes more yeah. than like three minutes. Um, so I've been back into reading. It's been very exciting. Um, and it reminded me of when I was a kid and this, I promise this is going somewhere eventually. Um, and I would, the bookmobile would come to my school yes. and how, and I just waited for that. I thought it was so cool. I love the bookmobile driver. Um, and they always had like the best recommendations and I, it was just like very, very exciting. And so I recent this week I read, um, a news story about three African-American book lovers who have taken it upon themselves to fill what, you know, is a, a growing gap left by, um, the closure of many feminist, queer, and black-owned bookstores across the country. Mm. So they're really in the 70s. There was like a real proliferation of these kinds of bookstores, and they just are not making it um, as much anymore. And so um, these three folks who I'm going to talk about are making um, making these books available that might not otherwise find them their way into the communities that really need them the most. And through this kind of like pop-up. So they're doing it through bookmobile, bookmobile sort of esque model. So um, the first one is a woman named Alexis Pauline Gums, and she has Gums Black Feminist Bookmobile, which is an Airstream trailer that she has set up in Raleigh, Durham, North Carolina. And I think currently it is um, stocked, but not necessarily mobile. She's getting it going so she can actually like take it around the community. But it is. Um, uh, and she herself is a queer black feminist author and has and really feels strongly that these books need to be represented in the community and has taken it upon herself to do that. Um, the second is a woman named Olaranka Akinmowo, and she does pop-up bookstores called the Free Black Women's Library. And, and she's literally like packing books up and taking them to um, various public locations in cities around the country. Um, in places where, you know, there's sort of a a book desert or a title desert. And Mm -hmm. she says, I see it as a black feminist project that for me, and this is um, quoting from Teen Vogue, it's a way to to confront patriarchy and it's a way to confront racism. Black women writers are rarely centered in a lot of the conversations. I feel like it's a way to bring that to the forefront and sort of shift people's perspectives and think about books and reading a little differently. And in some of the places that she's gone and done these pop-up bookstores, the local community has um, responded by actually creating their own free black women's library. So it's like she goes and sort of plants the seed and then um, then it, it grows after she's gone, which I think is so cool. And then the third is a man named Diara Cricket Leggett, who is um, himself a bookmobile driver and has then adopted that model to create the Boomerang Bookshop. Um, 
uh, nomad chapter in Greensboro, also, also in North Carolina. And he really felt like um, the bookmobile offerings were not um, featuring the titles um, by people of color that he felt like really needed to be represented. So he sort of created his own mobile bookstore on wheels that which he takes into the communities that he feels like really needs them and brings them the books that he feels are not getting out there um, otherwise. And I just think this is such a beautiful example of folks seeing a need, taking matters into their own hands, um, raising the funds, using their creativity, using their passion. And if this exists in your community, I hope that you will find it and support it. And if it doesn't, maybe it's something that you would even want to do yourself. Cause I think it's, you know, if you love something, share it. And I just, I think that is one thing I've really tried to emphasize on the podcast is how to, um, how to, focus on stories of people finding what they love and finding creative ways to make those connections with other people. And this just really stood out to me. Um, a lot of the titles, for example, that gum, um, you know, inspired her to, to, to do this to begin with, you know, she couldn't find copies of the, for example, the salt eaters by Tony Cade Bambara and was like, well, that's unacceptable. This is a book everybody needds to be able to read. So she took that and, and made that happen. So I love the bookmobile. I love the, the whole concept. I love this story. Um, and it just made me feel good that this tradition was being kept alive in the spirit of like the truly independent, like it doesn't get more in any independent than no, that. No, not at all. It, it's making me so nostalgic for like the good old days when you could walk out to the, <laughs> to the, I know. to get a book. I wonder if, if you could send them books or donations. Well, I, I want to find out more about that too. And once I do, I will put it on the, um, on the website. So if that's um, awesome. And another version of it's unrelated to this particular story, but another story that I've been seeing a lot lately is um, if you have book titles in your library that you're like, a lot of people are watching that Mari Kondo um, uh, show on Netflix right now, where she's like the, um, the life giving art of tidying up or whatever. And people are like going through their stuff and getting rid of it. Um, sending books to prison libraries, which are often very, very sparse and don't, you know, don't have a lot of diverse titles. That can be another, uh, another way to really like share titles that really mean something to you with folks who, um, you know, might just otherwise not ever have access to them. So that's such a great idea. I think a lot of folks want to make an impact like that, Mm -hmm. but are unsure about how and where to donate things like that. Yeah. Yeah. And so rather than, you know, goodwill or just putting them out in a free box, like actually sending them into spaces and communities where those titles are, are generally not being reached. So I will, um, I'll, I'll look into how to donate to these particular bookmobiles and also try to get some information about how to donate to the prison libraries as well. That's awesome. Link it up. Link it up. And on the complete polar opposite end of the spectrum, <laughs> um, in terms of sort of corporate capitalism going from like the the most like indie to the most corporate and uh, capitalistic, have you seen the Gillette commercial? Yes, yes okay. I have actually. This is this has been a very interesting story to watch unfold, yeah. and I. You know, I am certainly not someone who thinks that Gillette has done anything revolutionary or is signaling no, that they don't honks of plastic in the environment. No, no not. absolutely <laughs> not. Nor are they signaling that they genuinely care about women. I, I truly. So, for those who maybe have not seen the commercial, there's um, 
they released this short film that essentially, you know, names toxic masculinity as and names and, and it sort of shifted the tagline of Gillette from the best a man can get to the best a man the best men can be. Yes. I believe. And um naming to- toxic masculinity, showing a lot of examples of like men intervening with boys bullying each other and seeing um, examples of the Me Too movement on TV and sort of looking, furrowing their brows and looking concerned. So, I mean, fine. That's all fine. Um, I do think that this is truly a monetary decision. So I want to make that very clear. It's still being seen. It's still, people are like, and kids and all different types are visualizing, oh, there's other ways of behaving. Yeah. That's lovely. And I think, and I do think there's value to that. I also think that um, Gillette does make women's razors also. So it's not like, even though they're like, it ostensibly this is aimed at men, I'm like, okay, yeah, but like, this is also something I think that they're probably banking on women caring about. However, the thing that does encourage me about this, because I actually have some critiques of the commercial itself. I think it's pretty schmaltzy. I think it's, it it's very it reactive is. to like, bleh, I, I don't love it. Um, but the fact that they made that calculation and decided that it was financially better for them to do this than not, I think is actually kind of huge. Like if it is in fact financially lucrative to talk about toxic masculinity, like that feels like a win to me, even though the commercial I think itself is kind of bullshit. And I don't think it's an indicator that Gillette is a great company. I think that that's worth celebrating on some level um, because the reality is that we do live in a society where money is the bottom line. I mean, that's just, I don't like it, but that's the fact. Um, And there's definitely been a huge backlash to this commercial, of course, and lots of folks essentially reinforcing the message that the commercial is even trying to emphasize to begin with by saying like, Gillette can't tell me what kind of man to be or what to do, like, you know, and they're saying they're going to boycott the company and like, whatever, fine. Um, That's not, so Gillette is owned by Procter & Gamble who has done this before a couple of years ago, they had a TV ad called the talk where they showed African-American parents talking to their children about racism and police brutality. I remember that one, yeah. um, so this is not like entirely new territory um, for this company at all. And they've also Procter and Gamble has gotten dinged for um, child labor relatively recently. <laughs> and they also, I mean, all of their products are petroleum based and plastic. I mean, the, right. the, this is not like a squeaky clean company. Um, but I do think that it, it's, it, I, I do think it's valuable that the conversation is being had, that it's out there, that the message is, um, is being talked about, even though it's being talked about in, in both positive and negative ways. Like I said, I think that the calculation um, comes out in favor of talking about it, makes it is encouraging. Um, the I talked about this a little bit last week that even though I do think there, you know, there there is a, a growing sort of men's movement and men taking on the issue of toxic masculinity, and I, although I feel wary of that and. I recognize the ways in which that can often be problematic. It does like make me feel a little bit relieved. Well, definitely the Gillette commercial is showing that things are trending to the point where, where what's popular is being a better, deeper, more accepting. Yes. Yeah. And I think like, and I don't think that's a bad thing. I think I'm, I'm, 
I'm interested to see where this goes and how and how that trend with that trend where that where it takes us and whether and whether or not it continues to be a lucrative um and profitable position i hope so i mean typically like enlightenment walks the direction towards the light right and you don't go backwards once you once the light comes in you're like oh yeah that's right we're going in the right direction so one can only hope and yeah i mean we'll continue politically we're sort of walking in the wrong direction but culturally (laughs) maybe we're walking in the right direction i don't know i guess it remains to be seen but that it did um yeah, it, it, it definitely was, I think, worth talking about this week. So, so yeah, that's me. Woohoo. Woohoo. Well, I would like to hear who you are inducting into the Hot Dog Hall of Fame, Judy. Well, I'm kind of, I'm starstruck this time of year yeah. with all the Oscars and Golden Globes and all that business going oh, on. Yeah. Um, I love a great female lead. I love... Um, I love ladies that are in films that are not like your typical female lead. So that like have some substance and are kind of quirky. Um, some of the shows that I've loved this year, one was called Glow. I just absolutely the love The gorgeous lady is of wrestling. Yes, indeed. Yeah. <laughs> it's um, being like uh, retired derby girls, mm-hmm, I think. Mm-hmm. But there's definitely some parallels there, like sort of a build your own and uh, grassroots kind of a movement there. So that's a character that I loved. Um, but I love those types of characters in general. And so... Uh, Pulling from a winner from last year's Golden Globe was Frances McDormand. And I just love her. I love all the work that she's done. I, she kind of, to me, signifies um, sort of an alternative uh, female mm-hmm. lead role. And just in her life, she's the person that doesn't like really succumb to the the necessity to to wear makeup every day and like be shot by the paparazzi doing these like you know fancy you know hair flips and things like that she's very much herself and um and she's also allowed herself to age very naturally very naturally from one cottonhead to another i believe that to be important Mm -hmm. i mean i feel like it's almost a civic duty to like let yourself look like yourself Mm -hmm. so it's it's a kind of our an act of rebellion it is i totally see it as an act of rebellion every day and i and i kind of love that like small like fight back yeah (laughs) every morning well and she was the one who also during her golden globe speech talked about the the writer too right Right, exactly so she recognizes that um any actors that are hired to be in roles that are are part of the union there has to be a certain amount of roles for females and um people of color and and a diverse uh sampling of of characters Mm so um i love that she's using um using that as a way to stand up for changing the way that we perceive the world really i didn't even know that that was a thing before she talked about it i had no idea her speech too so i think it was actually very interesting just from sort of a public information point of view to Mm -hmm. to talk about that um so yeah no i think she's great i i agree and i i also like that she she does she takes on um 
roles that aren't also always necessarily like likable women. Yeah. Like quote unquote yeah. likable women. Exactly. Like Olive Kitteridge. I mean, she, that was a really interesting role and she nailed it. Mm-hmm. And and you you kind of hated the character and you loved it and you just didn't really, you know, but it was perfectly done. Yeah. The three billboards. Um, also, mom yeah. too I can't remember the name of the character but she was she was hard yeah <laughs> she was <laughs> yeah. real <laughs> so I mean I know I'm like I'm sort of like exactly one year behind in nominating Frances McDormand to the Hot Dog Hall of Fame however um, you know maybe we'll see her again next uh, next year and I just think she's amazing I, I agree I think she totally belongs there and um, the woman that I'm going to nominate is also someone who um, is from the entertainment industry, but not someone that probably most folks have heard of. Her, her name is Zhao Xiao Shen, and she is a young Chinese woman who is being credited with sparking China's Me Too movement. That's and I amazing. Just read about her in the New York Times recently, um, and her story began in 2014. She was working as an intern at a TV station where she says she was forcibly kissed and groped by a major TV personality named Mr. Zhu. And uh, she kept her experience to herself for several years. Um, She told her parents and her close friends, but just really felt like, you know, she was not in a position to... Do anything say, about it. No, to say sure. anything about what had happened. Um, this wasn't, this is not um, a situation like we're in China that this has been happening sort of parallel to, you know, what's been going on in the United States. And it's just culturally very different in terms of the way that, um, that women are responded to when they bring things like this up. So, but she did see a post by a friend of hers about being assaulted and using the hashtag MeToo and decided that she was going to, tell her story and so she wrote an essay um, about telling everything that had happened naming Mr. Zhu saying what he had done and the context in which he had done it and soon after um, her friend reposted her essay on a website a a microblogging website and it went viral across the Chinese internet and it was read by so many people that a lot of other women started coming forward with their own stories and the popularity became um, so rampant that the Chinese government was alerted and actually intervened and started blocking comments and, um, and banning the state run news media from covering her case because it just became like, you know, it was just like a spark that just like started this fire. Um, and so this has had some pretty serious consequences for her. Mr. Zhu is actually now suing Zhao and also suing the friend who reposted her essay. Um, but Zhao is fighting back and she has, um, through standing up to Mr. Zhu has inspired countless other women in China to continue speaking out about her experiences. Um, and this is a place where, and I don't, you know, I have never been to China. I'm not an expert on this, but my understanding is that the, the way that that patriarchal culture is um, is still very deeply ingrained in China. That women, you know, the the laws about rape and harassment are fairly vaguely defined. Mm-hmm. I um, can imagine it is. Yeah, it's a culture that where women are often um, either not believed or blamed for um, sexual abuse, and men, you know, there's just not like a great track record of holding men accountable for this kind of thing. So this is really 
this is really very revolutionary in a lot of ways. Um, and she's, Zhao says she really, you know, she knows that a lot of people think of her as brave, but she thinks of herself as lucky because people are listening to her story. That's amazing. That I she's know. got that perspective. I know. And she's, I mean, she's a very, very young woman. She's still only in her twenties. Wow. Um, and although she is nervous and frightened, she is not going to back down. She feels like she really has to press forward in this ordeal because, you know, she started it and recognizes what, you know, what an incredible impact her story has had on, you know, all these other thousands of women who are now starting to tell their story. Um, and this is truly kind of a David and Goliath situation where, you know, Mr. Zoo is very, very powerful, very well recognized, um, wealthy, famous man. And, and she is, is none of those things. Um, but it's, I mean, it's just incredible to observe this happening in a place where these conversations are really just beginning. So I'm going to definitely be following her story and, you know, I don't know exactly how, feminist hot dog can support her except to continue to to, to keep pushing forward yeah. like keep that tides a turn in. encourage encourage her so Zhao Zhao Shen we love you we are with you and welcome to the hot dog hall of fame and thank you for for speaking out and and doing what you're doing for the women of China and the women all over the world who are just now you know starting to to come into their voice and their stories and and telling them in places where those stories have typically really not been allowed to be heard hang in there baby hang in there um all right judy well thank you so much for being with me today i really appreciate you sharing your story and i love it i've learned so much today it's so fun i love it i love it too these are these conversations make my feminist heart think these are the days um all right well this has been feminist hot dog everybody thanks for listening our theme music is by ava luna and loyalty freak music love yourself love your buns goodbye Bye. i love that love yourself